0: Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis.
1: Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3.
0: to this second part of a two-parter on digital cash. So last time we discussed a brief history of cash, we went through the evolution of commodity-based cash, uh, commodity-backed paper cash, and then finally the weird and wonderful world that we're in right now, which is fiat cash. Um, We defined the difference between cash and money. Primarily money is any medium of exchange and cash is a specific subset of that, which is physical money. And, you know, there's a lot of things uh, that assumes like, you know, full ownership. I really hold the cash in my possession, which enables me to interact peer to peer. And that makes it more private and all this kind of stuff and maybe more secure in certain instances. Um, Then we went to talk about digital cash and the evolution of cash to digital cash and how this aligns with Web3. And similarly, with what I just mentioned about the properties of cash, there's lots of things there around privacy, ownership, peer-to-peer, all this kind of stuff. And then we ended, as we typically do, with a nice chat GPT summary, which um, gave us four example types of digital cash. Electronic money, cryptocurrencies, stable coins, and then CBDCs, which is Central Bank Digital Currencies. Is that about summarise the last episode, Jack? Yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, it's, a,
1: it's a good kind of place to pick back up as well because obviously we've got these four different types of, of digital cash. So yeah, maybe we can dig into those uh, and start with one, which I think is a little bit of a faux pas on ChatGPT's part uh, calling out electronic money or e-money as a type of digital cash, because I think we probably agree this is not actually a great example of digital cash. Mm. So, you know, we said last time electronic money or e-money is basically all the money we already have and interact with in our day to day, what we use, you know, with our bank accounts. It's all linked to our credit cards. It's all a form of money that's digital, but it's not really cash. It doesn't have the same properties as of cash, the same peer to peer private aspects that we, we come to expect or we defined for, for cash last time. Right.
0: Yeah, I think when most people think of how they interact digitally in the world, or even physically, sometimes when I use my credit cards, it's all associated with bank accounts, or you know, maybe debt in my in my bank accounts, and, and that's basically digital money. These numbers that are controlled by banks on on your behalf, maybe in a way, and that's money rather than cash. And I think one of the stats that you pulled out last time, which is really interesting, is that over ninety two percent of all money. Right now currently exists in this electronic money form, which is just is crazy, right? And you know all of most of this, especially in the UK, is run and owned by private banks. And maybe this is like a slight concern, especially when we come to like maybe some of the benefits of digital cash and cash generally, is that you know these private banks kind of know about every transaction you're doing, know a lot about you, and is this too much information? Like is the convenience worth the amount of information that they are getting right now?
1: Yeah, exactly. And the, the fact that so much of our money is this is this e-money, digital money form that we have right now, bank account based, you know, just numbers moving on on spreadsheets, that's actually probably one of the key motivations to develop proper versions of digital cash, right. So So we can retake this private notion of, of cash. we can have money that we can spend in a private manner. Uh, in a peer-to-peer way, um, that's in a low-cost way. So maybe that, that kind of moves us on to, okay, what are what are the real examples of digital cash? What are the real types? And the the, the first one of those that ChatGPT calls out is cryptocurrency, which is interesting because I think that's the one that encapsulates things like DigiCash, right? So we talked about David Cham last time, and maybe I'll give a very brief explanation of what that is now, given that we're digging into it. So DigiCash is actually a company that, that David Cham founded in 1989 and shortly after released something called eCash. So that was the kind of product of of DigiCash um, as as a company. And eCash is this this new model for digital cash. Remember, Mm -hmm. we're talking early 90s at this point. So this is uh, probably one of the early examples of a cryptocurrency in in, in the terms that we defined in a previous episode. So how this works, basically, is that you have a central issuer. In this case, DigiCash was the issuer of these, these digital cash notes, effectively. So you'd withdraw these from your 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 bank, your DigiCash digi compliant bank as a user. And then when you go to spend it, you also then kind of need um, uh, the, uh, these coins to be signed by that central entity as well, or at least checked by the central entity. So this was kind of a first pass of doing uh, digital cash. Mm. And it used this quite cool cryptography called blind signatures. So that that's one of the things that kind of maintains user mm. privacy. The bank signs these transactions not knowing who the participating parties are so your identity isn't actually linked in a similar way to mm. bitcoin but uh, actually it, it doesn't really achieve a lot of what we know about cryptocurrencies today because it's not exactly peer-to-peer you're still involving this bank
0: in the process yeah. i don't think anyone but you would ever define cryptography as cool but i just got <laughs> that noted down. cool cryptography yeah you're, you're right like but I mean, my when i think of digital cash like it should as closely represent the properties of cash as it can, right? And maybe then extend and go a bit further. And like the, the basic properties of cash really come down to ownership. The fact that I physically own it in my possession and I'm no one I'm not reliant on anyone to then use it. it means that I get a complete peer-to-peer interaction. There's no unnecessary intermediaries. When I go down to the shop and I give them a twenty pound note, like the Bank of England doesn't know that I've just given that twenty pound note. And obviously there's there's limits to this. If I'm buying like a five hundred thousand pound, you know, car or house with that kind of money, then there's checks and all this kind of stuff. But for basic everyday interactions like that, it is fully peer-to-peer. Because I own it, and that makes it private. And what you're describing there, it seems like the DigiCash project solved the privacy issue to an extent where they didn't know exactly what the kind of the transaction was, but it didn't fully solve the peer-to-peer aspect. And they were required, you know, an intermediary was required for every interaction in the loop. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And and it comes back to this. We've mentioned
1: it a couple of times before, but this double spending problem or how do you prevent double spending right because when we talk about physical cash double spending is very easy you have banknotes; they're physical you can you know look at them in, in, mm-hmm. under, under a uv light or whatever check the serial number for example you know that it's an authentic <laughs> note that is is going to be uh, accepted as legal tender in the digital world you may well have some some cryptographic information that says this is valid but how do you know that's not been spent on amazon and uh yeah. you know on apple at the same time right right for two different transactions so yeah. Really, DigiCash and, and the eCash project itself, it solved the double spending problem, but only using this kind of non-optimal solution involving a central bank. So it didn't mm-hmm. solve it in a particularly satisfactory way. That leads us on quite nicely to, you know, what was the
0: first really compelling solution of that problem, which was Bitcoin. Right? Yeah. I think when you were just talking there about checking banknotes, as I just imagine you like 10-year-old Jack at Christmas getting like £100, checking each of the banknotes under a UV light being like, are you sure <laughs> this is real? Like...
1: Yeah, yeah. Every time I get a birthday card, I'm like, have you actually given me some money here? Um, yeah. So, so that kind of, yeah, moves us on to Bitcoin, which I think you can easily describe it as the first really competitive... Compa- <clears throat> the... Sorry you can describe it as the really first compelling solution to the double spending problem that didn't require a central third party so for every time you you you're making a transaction to check if this is double spent how bitcoin solved this instead of having a central bank as as the checker you have this distributed network of nodes mm. who are who are maintaining this distributed shared ledger right so instead of one party we go to many parties competing to do that and that's i think that is is the describes the modern state of play with digital cash
0: yeah. And when we were kind of giving the history earlier, it was basically from, like i say, the 1940s, 1950s onwards, like the central banks came completely critical to the infrastructure of, of, of currency, right? And I suppose Bitcoin was quite revolutionary in a way where it kind of offset this, this idea of one central agency that controls you know, every intermediary or is the intermediary for every kind of online transaction and, and remove the need for that in quite a powerful way. So yeah, Bitcoin drastically changed this model. Uh, to i guess like in a way maybe a distributed a decentralized ledger for transaction execution and record keeping right and this kind of made the whole maybe money currency cash whatever we call it outside of the control of sovereign monetary authorities which is quite a revolutionary concept
1: exactly and and you know bitcoin is a lot of things to a lot of people but fundamentally if you look back at the original white paper and what it actually said the title you know called bitcoin a peer-to-peer electronic mm-hmm. cash system. So electronic cash, digital cash, whatever you want to call it at the same thing. It was really trying to solve that problem of robust electronic cash. And, you know, what we got from that was this much more peer to peer model of doing things where you, where you don't, you, you can transact privately, mm-hmm. offline, online with other parties, um, and, and you don't need that third party for for settlement. And it has a very, uh, it has, a, has a similar privacy model to DigiCash in the sense that there's no identity linked to these transactions natively right but um but yeah. it, it achieves that double spend prevention in a very very different way
0: and i think like you're right on the surface um, when we're talking about real ownership, real peer-to-peer privacy, all this kind of stuff, there being the fundamentals of cash, Bitcoin mm-hmm. does enable that. But when we think about like the depth of it, like when I give you twenty-pound note, you know, there's instant settlement there. Like there's no transaction fee. You know, there's kind of like transaction fees in the background. You know, we all pay taxes to, you know, the Bank of England to make sure I can actually have cash in my pocket. But there's no actual transaction fee in the loop right there. And when we think about Bitcoin right now. It's that doesn't happen. Like there's no instant settlement it takes a while to go through, but like, the transaction fees associated with it are astronomical. And this really goes against like, the principles of the white paper, right? If it's meant to be this peer to peer electronic cash system, there shouldn't be these crazy transaction fees that are associated with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. That And settlement's a really interesting point to mention, actually, because in our, you know, in in DigiCash or the the e-money world, settlement is being done. It's kind of in a binary sense. It's either you you have this contact with the banks and they say whether this transaction will settle or not. And you have, you know, sometimes you have real-time gross settlement, they call it. So you're settling things in real time. In other cases, you defer that and, and you clear it later. But in Bitcoin, if you've ever... Being on an, a Bitcoin exchange or crypto exchange, you, you might have seen this notion of confirmations. So yeah. it'll say, okay, well, you make a transaction, you buy some crypto, you swap it, you change it, whatever. And it'll say, you know, need six confirmations or X confirmations, yeah. whatever. This is kind of applying a notion of, of, of time-based settlements So saying if effectively, if you say you need six confirmations, you need this transaction to appear six blocks deep uh, in, yeah. in the blockchain. But actually this is conveying the fact that it's not a binary model anymore. There's a complete spectrum of security. So in a sense, your transaction is never settled on on the blockchain, but it's all a case of how much risk you're willing to accept. It's incredibly likely to have been settled in a sense.
0: Yeah, I was going to say there's an increased likelihood the more blocks and the more confirmations that have happened, right? And I think that I guess how that applies is that if you're like trying, you know, I'm paying for coffee, it's one pound worth of Bitcoin or something like that, then I might be happy with a small number of confirmations. But if I'm say paying 500 grand on a house, then I probably want the security of like, you know, many confirmations and proper network propagation before I say, okay, now I feel comfortable that it's gone through and I will give you the house, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly that. And there are also lots of different ways you can go about mitigating that risk um,
1: you know, not to get too technical, but in Bitcoin, there's this idea of simplified payment verification, or SPV, whereby you're meant to actually once you have a transaction, I would I should if I'm paying you, Alec, for something, I would give you the transaction and you'd be responsible for submitting it to the network. And you can then apply whatever additional security checks you need. That might be uh, I, I send it to one node and I'm happy if they say this is valid. I'll put this in my block. Could send it to all of the nodes and ask for them all to talk yeah. to you. It's up to you to decide your own level of risk and what what, what checks you need on that. And as you say, for a cup of coffee, uh, you're not going to need too much of that. If you're buying a car, you're going to probably mm. take some more uh, severe measures.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've grown so much. I was so worried then you were going to go off on like a two-hour tangent about the technicalities <laughs> of that. We will definitely save that for another episode. But yeah, Jack's twenty-second summary on that was perfect, right?
1: I've learned. I've learned from all the the hate mail I've got over the last the last few episodes about
0: going too deep. So. We thought about like uh, there's a funny joke in there, um, and we were worried before about like you us both going off a tangents and the idea of bringing in a buzzer to be like eh, eh, you need to stop there. The explanation is not good, yeah. but rather than going off at a tangent, back to it. Um, so the idea of like bitcoin being this peer to peer electronic cash system and we've talked about some of the issues right now around like instant settlements transaction fees all this kind of stuff like the adoption's not there is it like and there's also issues around stability like people not trusting in it because of the volatility and like a lack of trust and i guess adoption by big corporations by governments especially like when i think of you know, electronic or digital cash systems you need government adoption, right? That kind of trust really does have to be propagated in a lot of ways from governments, even if it's not them not being directly involved, but them just saying, yeah, this is a safe currency for you to use. And right that, now, that is not there. Exactly.
1: And you're almost talking about the properties of money again there, right? So I mm. think I would say like Bitcoin and blockchain work perfectly well as digital cash right now. They have done since you know 2009, more or less. But do they work well as digital money? right? Because digital cash should be a subset of money, as you said, uh, and not, not so much, right? Because of because of what you say, the volatility is meant to be one of the properties of money was a, a good unit of account should be a store mm-hmm. of value as well. So for it to grow from being just purely cash to money that you can use, it needs, you know, institutional adoption, it needs to be widely used so that the price will stabilize mm-hmm. at some point where, you know, <laughs> I, I, I remember an example, a number of years ago, when I first started, um, and, and and there was there was a brewery that was accepting Bitcoin payments for a day exactly. as kind of a test case, and <laughs> between them giving you the giving you the the between them giving you the bill and you paying the bill, the price had changed enough that then you it, it, they had to <laughs> issue you a new bill. So it, it really didn't work very well it, practically. And I think we're still in that yeah. in that that phase to a certain degree. There's a lot that needs to happen for this to become not just digital cash, but also a
0: functional digital money. Now, that is a perfect tangent. It's almost like you knew what you were doing there because the next of the four, the third, is stable coins, right? And stable coins is a weird one. It's effectively a cryptocurrency that is pegged to a stable asset. So in the same way before we were talking about um, you know, commodity-backed notes, as in what we were doing when we had gold-backed reserves for the dollar and all this kind of stuff, it's kind of a similar similar situation, but we're having cryptocurrency-style But pegged to stable assets and that asset that it's pegged to could be fiat, like the dollar, the pound, could be commodities like gold, silver, could even be other cryptocurrencies, Okay, which is an interesting one. And there's Hmm. also this idea of an algorithmic one that kind of caps it to some function related to something else. There's, There's a lot of ways. And the whole premise of this is to make the asset more stable. Right? So this is like some of the things that Jack was saying there about the price of Bitcoin changing over the course of seconds. That's a big issue, like when you actually want to use it in any kind of practical sense. So the idea of stable coins quite roughly is to remove that by pegging it to something that is more stable. Exactly. And
1: so stable coins really are they use the same technology, the same infrastructure, let's say, as Bitcoin blockchain. So they achieve the digital cash properties, via very similar mechanisms, but you are kind of reintroducing your third party here. In most cases, Mm -hmm. you said, you know, if uh, you have it pegged to a a stable asset and that could be a fiat commodities or other cryptocurrencies, for example, and Mm -hmm. that pegging is done by a a third party. It's done by the issuer, a company. So Tether is probably the most famous example of uh, a stable coin, Mm -hmm. uh, USDT. And they are supposedly backed one to one. And whether or not they are is a whole other question um, that people are people are wondering about. But you know, putting that aside, you're reintroducing this third party and any risk associated with them to actually have the reserves one-to-one with the with the stable coins in circulation. The algorithmic one that you mentioned is interesting because actually that is trying to overcome that issue and trying to say, well, okay, we don't want to reintroduce this third party for obvious reasons. We want it to function. Mm-hmm. More like digital cash, just with that stable price. The problem there is that you know the economics of the situation aren't necessarily robust. We've seen multiple huge catastrophic failures of algorithmic yeah, yeah. stable coins that you know they work for a while, but that when things go south, they really go south. So you know, Luna um, was was the example last year, which which many people will have heard about because that affected lots of lots of other uh, cryptocurrencies that were kind of using Luna as a liquidity vehicle. So
0: yeah, it's definitely not yeah. a solved problem. So let's let's go into an example. Like we're talking about stable coins and all this kind of stuff. Like you mentioned Luna there. So let's go into the Terra example. Terra is probably the overarching brand of it. And Terra is a blockchain platform that basically hosts two digital coins. So you have UST, which is the stable coin, which is designed to always be worth $1. And then you have Luna, which can change in price so effectively, if we have this UST, which is meant to be one dollar, but it isn't worth one dollar, then people can make a small profit by trading UST with Luna in a way that nudges UST back towards the one dollar mark, and that's effectively how the stable coins work there. And this this usually works well. Say usually, it did work pretty well for a while, and it it. But it might so things might start to go wrong if like big financial players. Uh, try to manipulate this and make the most of it and it can cause like big market crashes or you know if governments try to enforce new rules and you have this like single rule if you always want to get this to the right price then this can have big consequences and that did happen in May 2019. Jack do you want to provide a bit more info on this? Well yeah as you said there was a there was a significant issue effectively you know a bank
1: run on, on, <laughs> on this on this on this stablecoin platform but you know, you had a big withdrawal from one trading platform that caused a lot of concerns about, uh, you know, you know what what the liquidity would look like, that's backing, the stability of UST, and this kind of loss on confidence, as you see with bank runs, led to a real spiral in UST's value, and there essentially wasn't enough uh, enough of a market for arbitrage because that's what we call this kind of um, this, this secondary asset that's uh, not pegged, that's not stable, but is is keeping the stablecoin stable. Coin stable. The whole reason is, as you say, there's, there's a market for arbitrage. People see an opportunity to buy and sell at different prices, um, provide. And essentially what they do is when they buy the um, the Luna, they then provide liquidity for this big pool. They call it liquidity mm-hmm. pools. And this uh, a lot of the stability of the stable coin is linked to the size and confidence in that liquidity pool of the of the volatile asset. And yeah, essentially in, in May 2019, this spiral began that pretty much couldn't be... Uh, couldn't be recovered from there were further drops in value subsequently mm-hmm. to this a huge decrease in also luna's value and when the luna's value went off off a cliff then both because again they're, they're inter, inter interlinked yeah. with one another there was no recovery point and there was a huge contagion because people had been using this this luna and and, and also terra luna at the stable coin for liquidity and in other things they've been you know i mean you have this whole defi world which we will cover in a future episode but <laughs> one thing in DeFi is they call composability so you can link things together and that's great when things are going well but when something goes wrong then there's almost a chain reaction of problems that you see
0: yeah they're not so stable coins um so yeah like i said the main thing around stable coins is they're typically issued and backed by private entities um and that moves us nicely to the fourth and final of the four that we were given by ChatGPT, which is which is in many ways probably, I guess, one of the hottest topics right now is central bank digital currencies. They're kind of similar to maybe we can maybe relate them quite closely to stable coins, but instead of issue, I mean there are some differences, but instead of issuance by a private company, we now have issuance by a central bank. So this is effectively, again, as close to cash as possible and representing, say, representing say the pound as closely as possible uh, in a digital form. So in the same way that the Bank of England will you know, print and manage uh, all the pounds, all the coins and all the notes you have, it's effectively them issuing and regulating that same currency, but in a digital form. Um, and yeah, I guess one of the most interesting things around this is that it doesn't necessarily have to be blockchain or cryptocurrency based, right? Exactly. So you know, CBDC is, it is
1: effectively kind of moving some of that money from e-money. So this electronic version of fiat money that we deal with every day in our bank accounts and moving that to other infrastructure that operates a bit more like cash. So trying to move the physical cash that we have in in society to to a digital form. And that doesn't need to be yet. Yeah, there's no real technological barrier to, to how you achieve that. You could just mm-hmm. achieve that using a fully proprietary system that a government Wants to roll out in conjunction with its central bank to issue this uh, with, with its own proprietary software that only works in one company in one country. So yeah, it doesn't need a blockchain to do this. However, because of blockchain being the main infrastructure for most digital cash and compelling digital cash and all the stable coins that have come mm-hmm. uh, since uh, 2009, it is often and typically, I, I think, also should be seen as the best infrastructure for. A central bank digital currency. And we can go into why a little bit later. But it's just important to note, as yeah. you said, it's not it's not
0: strictly necessary. Yeah, I mean, and governments are worried about crypto and stable coins, like, you know, mm. they're they have an obligation to their citizens to provide, you know, stable, safe monetary options for them to interact. So when they see people like losing lots of money on crypto, maybe stable coins taking a lot of their user base away, they want to provide trusted options for people and maybe even have the ability to control those uh, options to an extent, you know, for fiscal monetary policy and all this kind of stuff. So this is like a big Kind of, um, this is being very emphasized by central banks right now. It's, I think the stat is over 85% of countries are considering some form of CBDC right now. So there's no fully implemented CBDC out there right now. There's a lot of countries that are in the latter stages of prototypes and, and big tests. Like I think one of the best ones is in South Korea right now. But there's lots, I mean, the Bank of England's working on it. The, you know the uh, Americas working on it. every country is effectively working on this, and that some of them are getting quite advanced. And I think the Bank of England said that they would probably have some CBDC solution in five to ten years' time being rolled out. And apart from those kind of concerns about what's happening generally in, in the kind of financial world and people moving outside of their ecosystem potentially, and that being a fear, there's a lot of benefits to having you know, digital cash that they can jump on the back of like, there's lots of reports around it could how it could help like financial inclusion, how they Mm. could have programmability, which is a very controversial topic that we'll come on to a bit later. But there's a lot of things that would add a lot of value to central banks issuing this.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are a lot of advantages, not just to I mean, there's, there's definitely an element of jumping on the bandwagon, right? You said 85% Mm -hmm. of countries at least now considering it. And part of that is obviously due to not, you know, the FOMO from from governments Mm -hmm. and central banks not wanting to miss out on this. But I think there's a general consensus that there are a lot of benefits to this, you know, like things like implementing fiscal policy. Um, We saw in COVID. the this, this the stimmy checks as you as, as they mm-hmm. referred to. So all this st- <laughs> all the stimulus packages sent out to citizens in the US were actually but based on checks sent at the post, right? Which is obviously a non-ideal situation. There's all, all sorts of problems that you can have arising from that. Um the security problems, you know, I get my post going to the wrong place sometimes. So I don't oh, want sure. my checks to go somewhere else, yeah. that kind of thing. But so so having digital version of that and it's, and you can kind of think of C B D C as a little bit like just a uh, a stable coin a fiat backed stable coin issued by a more trusted entity because the trusted mm-hmm. entity is your is your central bank in this case but yeah there are lots of different said financial inclusion is a big one you know you can use this to give give easy access to um to people in society to use government services for example uh to to, to receive stimulus to receive benefits and things it also helps governments as well so you can think of things like if you're Using a central bank digital currency for payments, then you could think about taxation at source as well. So rather than reconciling tax at a later time, you can also use this property, which we talk about in Bitcoin, of kind of splitting payments mm-hmm. um, natively on, on the blockchain. You could be taxing a, a kind of a small micro payment tax um, every yeah. time you make a payment. So that's really interesting and could basically, as we say, increase efficiencies for how central banks manage the supply of money.
0: Yeah and I think CBDC is a fascinating topic because there's so many examples of obviously huge governments and huge central banks rolling it out or trying to roll it out around the world and Effectively, trying monitoring how different countries are mm. potentially adopting it, and uh, different countries are rolling out, is fascinating. And I think we are well. We are definitely going to have an entire episode on CBDC, hopefully from an industry expert. Um, but yeah, like I say, it's really interesting to see how different countries have very different ideas mm. of what an ideal CBDC looks like. So, in the Bank of England, the report they rolled out the primary concern, and it's typical of Europe, typical of the UK, is privacy. It's all about user privacy. Users can't have their data being tracked, you know, for every transaction I do in in the way that it's kind of done in, in the private banking electronic money, you know, through Santander, HSBC, all these right now. But when you look at China's uh, adoption it's far they don't do not care so much about privacy it's actually in, in fact privacy is not really a concern to them it. whatsoever yeah it's all for them it's all about scalability technology all this kind of stuff So it's, it's really fascinating to see how we have these kind of dials for certain characteristics around like security privacy and how different countries will basically turn those dials left and right depending on the needs of, of their implementation
1: yeah, exactly. So I think th- it probably is a good time to talk about, you know, what are the, the characteristics characteristics of digital cash and specifically good implementation to digital cash and, and how we can avoid them, uh, you know, in bad implementation. So let's start with kind of, I think, probably the one of the most important is security, right? Because we said, digital cash should all be all, all be about ownership of an asset and you know cash we said is a bearer instrument it should be something which you can just present at a, at a, at a counter to your merchant and, and they should know it's valid and and you own this so achieving that security for digital cash actually is fairly is fairly simple this is why all the stable coins are being built on the same blockchain infrastructure why cbdc is also using uh, potentially going to be using the same infrastructure is because all of that has been solved quite neatly with the cryptography side of mm. bitcoin and blockchain so you know you have you have public private key pairs for signing transactions you have script for enforcing conditions on transactions so to say that this can only be spent by a certain person or a certain key or after a certain time those kind of conditions so the security element is actually as, as, as important as it is i think it's probably arguably the most well-sold, right, in in, in digital mm. cache.
0: it, it you're, you're completely right. Like, we do need an episode on private, public, key pairs, zero-knowledge proofs, all this kind of stuff, because it's like the bread and butter of what mm. enables all this technology to really succeed. Um, It's really interesting, though, that so much of the kind of, of the Web3 world generally uh, actually is typically deploying these, like, Web 2.5 options where people don't want, you know, the responsibility of owning their own keys, owning their own, like, you know, I guess digital versions of money on their mobile device, because how many times do you lose your phone? How many times do you forget your password? All this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of issues around that. I do completely agree that the end goal should be this, like non-custodial, I mean, this this self-custodial arrangement where I own all the stuff. But even like Coinbase, the most popular kind of crypto exchange in the world right now, that is a custodial arrangement where they run your keys for you it's interesting that a lot of people even though this should be the goal and move into this much easier user friendly web 2.5 option where someone is running the keys on their behalf
1: yeah I, that's a really important cuz i've probably just jumped in there thinking from a like technical perspective that's what we call system level security, right? So the, the actual security of the digital cash system itself is very well solved the Mm -hmm. user side. So how do how do you ensure user security and how do you custody your own keys and things successfully is definitely not very well solved. So the, the technology exists, but the user experience, uh, side of this is really pretty poor still, as you said, and lots of people are still opting for, uh, uh, for self uh, sorry for exchange custodied funds um, and until yeah I, I, again not an unsolvable problem it's more an education and, and improving the tooling in the future but yeah really yeah. important to, to to distinguish the two types of security i
0: think and this is really important for central banks as well like How do they roll this out? Are they going to play a Coinbase role where they, you know, own all the keys for everyone in the UK? If we take the Bank of England, for example, and then maintain, you know, the security, maintain the user friendliness. If I lose my phone, they can make sure I don't lose any of the money that was on on my phone. Or do they go, you know, full, full privacy mode, which is what they're saying they're pushing towards, where they don't know anything about anyone ever and nothing goes through them in a way. And users have the responsibility of managing their own keys. And if they lose their funds, well, you know, who cares? That's on on you. That's the responsibility you've taken. It's a really interesting one to see how different kind of deployments of this Mm. are playing this out. So the the next big one for me is privacy. I've said it many times, privacy. I think everything comes down to ownership and peer-to-peer. But effectively, in the same way I have cash in my device, if I pay Jack £20 for whatever, um, no one really, apart from me and Jack, should know that occurred and the difference between you know I saw this 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 quote so the difference between secrecy and privacy is privacy I want to just maintain um privacy between me and Jack and secrecy is I don't want anyone to know about it privacy is I only want the person relevant to know about it and secrecy is I don't want anyone to know about it and yeah. I think in this instance when we have a peer-to-peer interaction it's just the only person that this transaction relates to is myself and Jack and the whole world doesn't know that I we need to know that I said Jack 20 pounds. And I think, you know, Bitcoin has solved this in a way, like they enable peer-to-peer interaction, you know, throughout the network. Um, but there is a, there's an interesting thing here about identity and how identity comes into the whole idea of privacy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And as you say, in Bitcoin, the privacy model is quite simple. And you know, we talk about the transparency of Bitcoin. So saying you can see the transactions, they're all public, mm-hmm. but you can't necessarily see identity. You can only really There's only visible identity in Bitcoin if you want it to be that way, because natively you're just seeing these private public key pairs interacting digital signatures. No one can determine who created these signatures, who owns the keys, Mm -hmm. for example. They're what we call firewalled off from from Bitcoin. So what that means is you can implement identity on top. You could have certified keys where you're given a key by someone. And this is, again, how, how CBDC could be implemented in some cases. Where you're assigned a key to use for your for your CBDC money that is linked to kind of standard public key infrastructure. You can also very privately link keys so that you know maybe I don't want everyone to know that this is my key, or maybe I don't even want the central bank to know this is my key, but they have some way of checking later on if, if we need to check something or if there's a KYC um, a payment where you need KYC involved. But but yeah, basically Bitcoin solve the, the double the double spending problem without sacrificing privacy this is where kind of that d- does fall down a bit because yes it does have a good level of privacy um in, in most cases because of this thing called blind signatures we mentioned so the bank doesn't know the transactions it's signing so the identity of the of the um the users uh when they're transacting is is, is firewalled off except it couldn't quite solve this for offline payments actually so mm-hmm. if you're doing offline payments and you don't want to have a bank a, a direct connection with a bank while you're making the payment, then actually this involves some kind of additional identity, and they will basically be able to reveal your identity or determine your identity if you try and double spend. So it's kind of a very, uh, it, it, it's it's not great as a solution. It's kind of a, a
0: stopgap. Yeah. Um. You have there. And this is an interesting one, like the idea of identity. I'm glad you mentioned like KYC, which is know your customer. Um, AML anti-money laundering checks like if you ever go to open uh, a bank account you obviously have to give your passport in they do loads of background checks to make sure you know you are who you say you are you don't have any outstanding debt you're not a criminal all this kind of stuff and then they monitor all your transactions based on that. But cash is slightly different right like I can own as much cash as I want through whatever methods and not anyone like no one's the wiser for it. And, you know, if I spend 20 pounds in the shop, then no one knows about it. I don't have to tell anyone about it. I don't have to prove my identity, depending on what I'm purchasing. When purchasing alcohol, obviously, there's checks there. But if I say all of a sudden I try and buy like a, a 50 grand car and I pull up with a 50 grand bag um, in cash in notes, then there's obviously going to be some questions asked and there's going to be some checks there. So I think it's an interesting one for identity, it's a very interesting one for CBDC. And how they're going to implement it is going to be very interesting. I, what I've seen generally is the idea of like tiered access. So you don't need very many identity checks whatsoever to spend below like five pounds in a daily or something like that. If you're spending above 10 grand, then you have to have a serious like KYC check.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that just mirrors the, you know, as you said, KYC works in the real world. And interestingly with cash, you can think of the KYC check. Say I was going to pay, I think it's in the region of 200 pounds or something is, is the, is the limit for a cash payment. Mm-hmm. I'm not, don't quote me on it, but, The actual money side is still kind of separate, right? Because you're still paying Mm -hmm. with some physical money and you do the KYC check on your identity, but they're two different parts of the transaction. And you can mirror that again in Bitcoin. You can separate how you do the KYC check from the the actual on-chain payment itself, which is I think just worth clarifying as well. You don't need to build it in at the the system Mm -hmm. level again to to Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the next big characteristic that we want to talk about is resilience right? I think earlier when you're talking about CBDCs not necessarily having to be based on blockchain. Um, well, there's a reason that blockchain exists and there's a reason that people find blockchain favorable. It's this idea of decentralization, right? The fact that we are distributing these data sets across different nodes and that means that if one node goes down that the other two or however many nodes there are in the network can pick it up and make sure the network is carrying on and being healthy. And I think this is something that CBDC, you know, it needs to have resilience, it needs to have uptime. And if we all of a sudden start to have CBDC that replicates, you know, maybe monetary systems or something like this, where it's very centralized, there might be an issue there with resilience. Yeah, exactly. I, I, th- I think we've, we've kind of harped on this plenty in the, on the podcast,
1: but the, that's the key with with doing using Bitcoin as, as digital cash is that the resiliency comes from making it a, com- a competition between nodes to mm-hmm. maintain service to you as a user you know bitcoin has had effectively 100 uptime for uh how like 14 years now which is insane mm. right you've basically been able to use it without outage for 14 years because you always have multiple participants willing to mm. accept your transaction whereas if you have a, a bank or, or a payment services provider go down then you then you'll run into problems and, and you don't want that with a privately issued digital mm. money basically uh, digital cash so yeah i think it's, it's pretty clear why there's a big value proposition for using blockchain as the underlying piece for digital cash.
0: Yeah, I think um, the the next big one is around interoperability. And this is an interesting one because I'm trying to imagine a world in the future in which I whip out my Visa card and I can all of a sudden pay with Bitcoin or whatever the the cryptocurrency is in the future. Like, it's like not just interoperability between systems, it's the idea of interoperability between... Traditional finance systems of the Web2 world, um, like electronic money as we've defined them, and the next generation of cash systems. And I fi- I can't poss- like comprehend right now the idea of using a card, a Visa card for Bitcoin. Yeah, I have to
1: say this is almost definitely the biggest challenge, I think, um, for using digital cash in general um, beyond the kind of volatility aspect, but even for things like stablecoins. Just being interoperable with physical terminals, because I think the online piece is actually a little bit easier where you you can you can quickly update software in a website that's that's taking payments. You can add an additional payment option online, as you'll see, you know, you'll Mm -hmm. see people saying pay with crypto. And actually, in the early days, it wasn't that uncommon to see a pay with Bitcoin option because you you could do that um, relatively easily. It's almost yeah. interfacing with the, the physical world, your brick and mortar payment providers, which is such a huge challenge because there's a huge sunk cost into the terminals that they're already using to accept yeah. your payments. And you are seeing an uptake of, um, of, of new devices. Uh, Square is an example, you'll have know, seen mm. the new Square terminals, which is a clever way because you can have applications on those terminals for accepting mm. different, uh, different types of payment, including cryptocurrency. But yeah, it's it's still not a a particularly easy challenge to solve.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Like when you're thinking of it uh, on the web, and I'm paying for something, it's very easy to imagine someone offering a service, and if I'm paying for fiat, they will just provide a little add-on where they can monetize the idea of converting that to Bitcoin behind the scenes, and I don't see anything that makes sense. But like you say, physical world, it's so different. Like Visa, Mastercard, Amex, all these kind of chip terminal. Um, relevant companies, they have a complete monopoly on this system. Why would they want to enable someone to start to put Bitcoin in there or whatever cryptocurrency or whatever digital cash system in there? Like like I said, there's a massive sunk cost. It would cost so much for them to change the hardware of these devices or start to support it. And there's no real incentive for them to do that. No, it's definitely the
1: stickiest part of the existing Mm. payments world to overcome. Um, I 100% agree. And there are lots of companies actually offering what you said in the general online payment space, where Mm. you have people effectively being liquidity providers or uh, exchange providers for crypto to fiat, fiat to crypto online payments as well. And, Mm. you know, talking of interoperability, we also probably have to mention blockchain to blockchain or digital cash to digital cash interoperability Mm. because that is also a big challenge. Um, we have seen some advances in this. Like we've got this notion. I hate the layers. If you ever talk about layers in 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 crypto, I absolutely don't hate get them. started. Getting started. Change, <laughs> they change every week, right? So traditionally, you'd think of Bitcoin as like a layer one thing, and then something built on top of that, like te- uh, Tether, would be a layer two thing, right? Which is just using Bitcoin as a mm. uh, as a base layer. Now they're talking about layer zero, which is just <laughs> <which is laughs> confounding in my head. But this is for mm. things like. Ch- interoperability between the actual layer one chains themselves. So you have things like polka dot, you have bridges being built, um, between Mm. different chains to, to make, make it easier to exchange digital cash between different chains, which is Mm -hmm. important. But again, there's a huge UX and adoption challenge for that as well
0: no one wants to see that. No one wants to know, like what the hell, like what's going on behind the scenes. That should be all like fundamental protocol that's fixed for life and the plumbing. I don't give a crap about TCP and IP and what's going on beneath the surface. Like I just want to use it and I want the most seamless user experience possible. And it's worth mentioning as well. You know, back to the security issue the the
1: layer zero interoperability thing is where you're seeing the biggest security challenges actually for this mm. bridging that's where a lot of the that recent hacks um in the ethereum world are, and, and polka dot world are happening is these bridges because you have these kind of almost semi centralized entities involved it's a real it's a real minefield so let's not get into it but you know it does You've convinced it does me though we'll do models. a bridges
0: episode you have convinced me we'll do a bridges episode we'll push it to another day so you don't get too worked up right now <laughs> nice good good idea So speaking of getting worked
1: up, (laughs) um, come on to the kind of final property or characteristic, which is this programmability that we mentioned. And this is is a really controversial one. And I think is the one that people are most worried about when they they hear about CBDC, right?
0: Yeah, this is. So when I first heard about this concept, I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like they can, well, let's explain what it is. Like, Programmability related to digital cash, like where you can effectively um, implement smart contracts behind the scenes that can be used to do anything from, you know, automatically executing something on you know, predefined criteria, like holding money in escrow. And then when someone does the job, it automatically gets sent to someone, all this kind of stuff. But it can go so much further where you could say in a say, uh, CBDC set I can start to directly incentivize people to use their digital pounds at certain shops, for example, like spend it on certain foods. I think a, a good example that I heard was like, you can say, okay, uh, people on benefits or something like this, or if there's a universal income like deployed around the country, you can say, okay, you're only allowed to spend this 100 pound a month on food or something like that. I was like, okay, cool. That's like a really interesting implementation. And then you're like, oh, wow, this is actually quite a scary, slippery slope that could lead to complete governmental control, right? Where they can say, you can only spend your money in a certain way. And this has got a lot of people in kind of a very concerned and an uproar right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is a valid concern, right? It's it, this is where
1: people worry about moving away from physical cash di- to digital cash and CBC, taking us to this dystopian surveillance state type idea, mm-hmm. where programmability becomes something that can be used against you. You know, uh, the example I've seen, and I think this has happened uh, already in, in a digital cash system in, in the in the world somewhere is prov- uh, saying you need to spend this money by a given time. Right. Which is really um, scary. Yeah. Right. Saying this will become invalid if you don't spend it by next month. And obviously, you can see why you might want to do that as a government to stimulate spending. And maybe it's great for, 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 for reducing or, or modifying inflation. But as a, as an individual user, as a, as a as a member of society, that is really scary that your money could come become worthless overnight because it's sitting in your wallet.
0: Yeah, like I think I saw this as well where obviously we have interest rates right now where you hold your 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 money in a bank account and and the number determines whether how much you save. And they kind of use this in a way to say if there's lots of interest, you obviously are more inclined to save your money in the bank account because you get a lot more money back and it's worth saving it. And if they reduce the interest rates, you're more likely to spend it. But then obviously what you've just implied there, another version of that is this thing called like disinterest or something like that, where it (coughs) depreciates over time. So like the longer you hold in your bank account, you have like a minus five percent every Month or something like this, and that obviously stimulates you to spend in the economy. But, like, imagine how outrageous that would be. You've worked your whole life to save like 20 grand in your bank. Account. You better buy a house or something like this, put the deposit down in the house. And then, all of a sudden, the government comes through and is like, nah, we're going to start taking that every month, even if not, you spend it asap. It's crazy, yeah. And again, this just proves the point, right? All new
1: technology can be used for good or for ill. And when mm-hmm. people say CBDC, you have to take it with a pinch of salt, right? Just CBDC is not good in and of itself. It has to be implemented mm-hmm. well in a way that preserves all these properties that, we, that we've just mentioned. I mean, I, I know this is, we we kind of wanted to cover the challenges and concerns around digital cash. I think we've actually covered quite a lot of them already, right? It, it, just talking about the properties. So, yeah, you know, we talked about security and privacy and needing to make sure that the user level security is there. The regulatory regulatory challenges on you know how you implement identity well ensure kyc is still um, mm-hmm. uh, possible then one interesting one i definitely think we should maybe highlight now is is the any technology barriers right because the biggest one i think i can see is scale because you, you're mm. to the high fees right why the, why that's a problem
0: yeah, yeah. I think um it in scale means many things to many people. Like I say, the one thing would be transaction fees. Like it costs an absolute bomb to send anything on Ethereum and even Bitcoin to a certain extent. But then also like the transaction throughput right now on Bitcoin is like seven transactions a second or something like this. Mm-hmm. I think that what Visa's processing worldwide is in the hundreds of thousands a second, if not the millions a second. I mean, Ethereum doesn't do much better. It's like 30 a second. So like these networks right now don't scale properly, or they're not scaling in the way that they should. And I think this is, you know, if you want something, I think the Bank of England said that any CBDC solution that they have has to have a minimum throughput, stable throughput, Of 30,000 transactions a second. So there's just no way that you can base it on these kind of implementations right now. Yeah, exactly. And we're we're talking about,
1: you know, the lack of scalability of some of basically the leading most popular blockchains and cryptocurrencies. Hmm. And they're really not suitable in any meaningful way to, to, to root most digital currencies on right now, right? So even if the governments do decide on a perfectly good model, with all these properties preserved, if they can't implement it on a blockchain that's scalable enough, then it's a no go anyway. Um, and I think that is also we've, we're racking them up today, but I think that's another episode for the future where we should go deep into the scalability challenge itself and what it means, because I think, you know, there is good news. I think there are ways to to overcome this challenge um, and that blockchain can be used to support, you know, national level CBDCs. But current state of play is it's not very attractive for them right now
0: yeah definitely and we also in terms of challenges we talked about you know adoption and primarily one of the the barriers to adoption is around the integration with traditional financial systems like you know chip and pin terminals things like that like i I can't see that changing anytime soon like in in a real kind of wide widespread way because you know visa mascot they have a monopoly on these systems um and the other thing is should digital cash replace cash completely it's a big question like there's a lot of questions around inclusivity like there's just there's always going to be people that are left out when you move to like the digital world because just people that don't have smartphones aren't digitally savvy and obviously it's the, the right or the kind of government is supposed to make sure that these people kind of do come with us on that journey, and they have access to digital education and also digital devices. But there's always going to be maybe at least for the next 50 years, anyway, a small group of society that do not want to use a smartphone to transact, right. And we shouldn't take that away from them. Like, we shouldn't push digital cash as a means to replace cash, digital cash should be an option for people that don't necessarily want to use digital money in the, the kind of the way that we're using it right now, which is private money and this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think the inclusivity part is, is a real, that's the main right reason for saying maybe we don't go straight to uh, replacing physical cash. I mean, I will say again, cryptography is cool <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, what you can do uh, with cryptography in a physical setting, you know, we're already used to using it in bank cards. Um, you can embed cryptographic information into physical, into very low powered physical things, including Bank notes, right? So there are mm. companies actually looking into this, I think I want to say one of them is called dual, where they mm. are issuing notes now. So physical cash notes that are linked to central bank digital currency, and they can be linked. And when you when you spend them, they're using the cryptography embedded within within the, the note itself. So it's, it's, it is super cool technology. But um, this, this this doesn't, this should be not taken lightly, this transition from pure physical, especially with those concerns about programmable CBDC, right? in in, if you're if you're in a country where there's a move to this more draconian form of cbc then Mm. you should be a little bit worried i think about uh, you know going completely away from physical cash
0: yeah so lots of concerns like so many opportunities, but there are some concerns, and it, it's not that governments aren't thinking about them, like in almost all the documents that I've read on they, they understand these. Like the digital pound was very hot on inclusivity and making sure people aren't left behind, it's just an alternative option for people that want it. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see how different implementations of digital cash and CBDC specifically maybe are rolled out and how they work and if they work and who adopts them and who doesn't adopt them. And yeah, so Jack, what is your take on the future of digital cash
1: well let, let's assume that you know we get good implementations happening and we the, the scalability challenges is, is solved well enough to use them mm. i think the biggest use case i see for digital cash and, and the one that has the biggest immediate impact globally is for you know remittances right so making payments cross-border for people working in different countries to, to, to where their families are potentially. Because this is a, there's a huge, I don't want to say market for this, but there's a huge demand for, for doing this globally. There are lots of overseas workers across the world. And currently, so so this is measured typically for what's the cost of remittance for a $200 payment. And on average, it's around 6.2%, which is, again, it's high even as it is, right? But that's twice, as over twice the UN's sustainable developments goal of 3%, right? So we're, we're in a really, it's a big challenge that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of impetus to solve, there's a lot of demand to solve this challenge. And I think digital cash and CBDCs are the best tool, again, if you have a scalable version of this, to mm-hmm. reduce those costs, right, down to, to fractions of of the actual, um, the payment amount itself, because that that's just untenable. If you're losing 6% of your money to, to just pure fees, then that's just, it's it, it's really unfair, I think
0: yeah i like that one that's a powerful one like the remittance economy is huge like it that makes a lot of sense i think um for me like we've, we've talked about it in an entire episode but it's micro payments. like the micro payments obviously, well, in a lot of ways are dependent on the success of digital cash, but there's going to be so many use cases and new business models and new economies that are realized when we can start to send fractions of pennies or fractions of dollars, whatever it is, like the idea of payment streaming, the idea of, you know, micro payments, micro incentives being out, especially from a governmental level. We talked about this before, like if we start to have a CBDC that's implemented in the UK, imagine if the government could start to micro incentivize like actions that are good for say, people in the UK, like it could be, you know, you give you put a bottle through the scan the QR code, put it into this recycling plant, you get a Mm -hmm. penny Fraction of a penny. You go for a run, obviously, that's a really great way to stay healthy. That's going to reduce the burden on the NHS. You get a penny or you get a 10p or something like this. You get a penny per mile, say, something like this. Like the idea, and it's kind of, it could go down the draconian route where you start to say, okay, well, they start to really get involved in how we act societally. And is this going to go down a slippery slope where they start to de incentivize certain activities potentially? But the idea of like incentivizing positive kind of outputs and positive actions by citizens in a micro incentive way, I find really really powerful i really like the idea of that happening yeah i
1: 100 agree and basically i think what you're describing there is all use cases we normally talk about with micropayments just being applied to effectively legal tender if you use it for a CBDC, yeah. then this is something that immediately has much better adoption is much easier to you to, to do these interesting use cases of micropayments so i'm fully on board with that i think the other thing kind of just the final one for me is like on the the cbdc Um, fiscal policy side and actually managing the money of a state. I think there are huge benefits because there's very, as as you can imagine with physical cash, one of the downsides of the privacy you give users is that then the central bank has very poor visibility of how money is used. So moving to a CBDC digital cash model, you should in theory be able to uh, be able to track the use of money to track how money is flowing in the economy much better and be able to analyze, get real-time insights that you can't get with physical cash. And again, as mm. so long as you, you you should be able to do that in a way that doesn't compromise privacy of users, but then gives all this extra data information for analytics to your mm. central banks, which I think is a, a very important tool they will have in the future.
0: It's an interesting one, because when we were talking about, you know, what is... Um... What is what's what's the thing GDPR? What's data that's related to uh, GDPR and how mm. can I, uh, personal identifying information, right, PII, and it's like everything, everything is personal identifying information in a way. But I do say your point that if we, I think what the term that the Bank of England used on this is that if we aggregate data, aggregate data mm. is fine to analyze. If we look at it on this t- course of like, you know, 10 million people, these are the rough things over the course of like a month or something like that. Then it's really difficult, if not impossible, to go into the the, the minutiae of that, to be like, Alec keeps buying coffee every day at 10 a.m., like that kind of thing. So yeah, I think aggregate data, I'm fine with the analysis of that as long as it's quite, as long as it's like the system is designed in such a way that there's no way to actually kind of you know, go to the exactly. back door and work out how that data has actually gone has been spent by me for example
1: yeah i I, and i i where where i'm coming from there is i i fully think it's possible to have a version of cbdc that looks very much like bitcoin whereas if you look at the bitcoin blockchain right now you can see the flow of money you can see the velocity of money the transactions you know various statistics that you you can perform on that data but i can't tell anything about the identity of the users Mm. and i think that is the form if you have a, a, a cbdc that mirrors the bitcoin privacy model then you will get a lot of those benefits I think
0: fine fine I'll let you do it I trust (laughs) you you can do
1: it well yeah it's easy to say isn't it but but I'm not (laughs) the one implementing it but awesome okay well I think yeah we've covered a lot there I think uh you know two episodes in digital cash is probably enough uh for one season of the show let's say so um yeah and and we've got lots more to to cover now much more homework to do for future episodes so with that we'll say uh, yeah thank you for listening wherever you may be and we'll join you next time to untangle a little bit more of web3
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web 3, produced by Emma Camilleri.
1: Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web 3.
0: The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.